Do you catch what he said there about truth? He said, my truth was that there was no rake because he couldn't find it. But the reality was it was right there. He said, if the truth is there, then we need to find it. And to say that it's not there is just to not know it. That's a brilliant statement. He's talking about the difference between subjective truth, which is based upon our own perceptions, and objective truth, which is based on reality. It's what Francis Schaeffer used to refer to as true truth, that which is actually true. And most of us can probably relate to that story on some level as kids. Most of us have probably had some kind of similar experience growing up when we were convinced about something beyond the shadow of any doubt only to find out that what we believed to be true was actually just our perception, you know, like the monster under the bed or the tree branch scratching against the window. It wasn't reality and often it it takes a parent or an adult who knows the truth, who understands the reality of that circumstance to point us to that reality, to the actual truth. But the fact is, the exact same situation is just as common among adults in the world today as it is among children. It's just that the older we get, the more sophisticated our arguments become in support of our own subjective truths, no matter how far from reality, from objective truth that they may be. We just get more savvy in defending our positions, regardless of how subjective they are, which which can quickly mire the process of sharing the gospel with people when each person believes that truth is something that they can create for themselves rather than something that has already been determined by someone else who is transcendent, someone who is greater than us. And so can you see how paramount it is that believers be able to point people to objective reality, true truth with clarity and confidence unabated by all of the clouded and clever arguments of subjective reasoning that are so prevalent uh, pervasive in our culture today we have to be able to peel back the layers of those clever arguments that distract so many people and lay bare for them the truth the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he taught us, which means, of course, that we have to know and understand what is actually true ourselves. We have to understand the way of Christ before we can share it with anyone with anyone else. And this is the brilliance of the gospel according to John, and particularly chapter 3, which we're working through today, which is probably the clearest and most concise summation of the gospel in all of Scripture. John had such a gift, such an ability to expose the truth with great clarity and conviction as a first-hand witness and close personal friend of Jesus himself. John chapter 3 is a wellspring of truth about Christ, and it comes straight from the mouths of John the Apostle, John the Baptist, and of course Jesus himself. Three individuals, by the way, who if they were in reality nothing more than just rambling lunatics who were making up stories, which is what a lot of people will tell you today, those three would have probably just been ignored or written off as irrelevant. But they were not ignored. And they were anything but written off as irrelevant. John the Apostle was exiled to live out his life on a barren, lifeless, rocky island off the coast of Asia Minor. John the Baptist had his head cut off. And Jesus was crucified. Why bother to go to such great lengths to silence these men if they were truly of no account? Why bother? You see, 
to a person who is satisfied to live under their own delusions, their own subjective truth, there is nothing more offensive and nothing more threatening than someone else who has a firm grasp on reality who is telling them the actual truth. It infuriates people to hear the truth when they're content to live under their own self-deception because the truth requires them to face the fact that the reality they have created for themselves is nothing more than a comfortable distraction. It's like a pain medicine that neither heals the wound nor makes you healthy. It only masks the pain that is in reality still there. Facing the truth can be painful. It can be difficult and it will most certainly require you to change your life if you're living apart from it. This is why when I'm asked to go into hospital rooms and speak with dying people who don't know Christ, I always expect, and believe it or not, I'm typically met with a lot of anger and denial and have at times been asked to leave. In fact, I have yet to have anyone ever have a deathbed conversion for me. Because there are a lot of people who would rather mask the painful reality that they're lost without Christ and numb that pain through the distraction of subjective truth than to have to abandon their own ideas about eternity that are built on nothing more than wishful thinking and a lot of cheap misinformation and then face the truth that they must change. But the truth, the true truth is that the reality of what Jesus did for us was anything but cheap. The way of Christ cost him and many others their lives. Why kill Jesus and literally millions of other people who have followed him if it's all just a bunch of made-up stories from the first century by some crazy people? It doesn't make any sense. Why? Why go to such trouble? Because deluded people who are content in their delusion are most threatened by the truth. And that truth, the reality about Jesus, is what John 3 is all about. Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian and pastor, once said, if we were asked to read to a dying man who did not know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for us all, for that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. So we're going to look at John 3 today. And as we read, take notice of how difficult it was for Jesus himself. I mean, if anybody knew the gospel, I'd say it was him. How difficult it is for him to explain salvation to one of the most religiously educated men of his day. We, we really need to not only pay attention to the interaction here between Jesus and Nicodemus, but to deeply consider the reality, the truth of what Jesus is actually saying about salvation to all of us and the implications that go along with that so that we can effectively share that truth with other people. So let's jump into the story together. We're actually going to start back on verse 23 of chapter 2. That's right where we left off last time because these last three verses of chapter 2 are a really important introduction to chapter 3. So chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So there's this interesting 
wordplay in the original ancient Greek language here. In verse 23, when John says that many believed in the name, when they saw the signs he was doing, the word believed is the Greek word pistuo. It literally means to have faith in or to trust in someone or something. So the people saw Jesus perform these miracles, and because of that, they put their trust in him. And then verse 24, when John says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, the word entrust there is the same Greek word, pistuo. So the people put their faith, their trust in Jesus, but he did not put his faith, his trust in them. And John goes on to explain why, because Jesus understood the reality of what was inside of mankind. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable, to be honest with you, that we get a little too chummy sometimes in our doctrine with Jesus. I don't, I don't care for the, the bumper stickers that say, Jesus is my co-pilot, those sorts of things. Forgive me if you have one, it's okay. But, but we put our faith in Christ. He doesn't put our faith, his faith in us. And so, yes, there's an intimate relationship. He calls us friend, absolutely. All of that is true, but we're not on equal par with him. You understand? It's not like a marriage, the 50-50 or 100-100 or however you want to say that. We're not on equal par with Christ. He's not a buddy. You know, he is the omnipotent, omniscient, holy, sovereign, immutable, unchangeable, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, creator, almighty God. And we should view him as such even as we know we have intimate relationship with him. He doesn't put his faith in us. We put our faith in him. He wasn't in any way, shape, or form fooled by outward appearances or titles or affiliations. He was only concerned with the heart of men and women. And he knew exactly what was in their hearts, which is precisely what we see demonstrated in this story as we continue to read. Let's keep moving. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's a deeply religious man. John says he was of the Pharisees. He was a highly educated man. Nicodemus was a Greek name, which can not only be a... Um, an indicator of some educational pedigree, but later on Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. He was particularly influential. John says he was a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Interestingly, the name Nicodemus, which in the Greek it's really should be pronounced Nicodemus, but we say Nicodemus, in its original Greek form means innocent blood. It also means victorious among his people, which is compelling to say the least that that one with that name would learn about salvation from the very person who would fulfill the meaning of the name Nicodemus later on. As Jesus, of course, shed his own innocent blood to claim victory for his people. And the exchange between them here is equally compelling because everything that Nicodemus expresses faith in concerning Jesus is based on his own perception of the truth, based on what he's seen Jesus do. And it's not that that was wrong. It was just incomplete. Because it becomes glaringly obvious as the conversation continues. And we'll see here as Jesus begins to share the truth about salvation with him. Which goes against everything that Nicodemus had ever been taught about salvation. Let's keep reading verses 3 through 15. 
Jesus answered to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus, this highly educated religious man, steals away into the night to spend time with Jesus, who he recognizes as a teacher sent from God. And he's hoping to receive some divine wisdom, but he ends up getting a whole lot more than he bargained for. Okay, The way of Christ is often unexpected. The Jews believed that their racial identity, their old birth as opposed to a new birth, assured them a place in God's kingdom. But in this one conversation, Jesus completely shatters the Jewish paradigm regarding salvation. And he paints an entirely new and unexpected picture of what it meant to experience true salvation, actual salvation. And so emphatic about it was Jesus that he uses the phrase, truly, truly. That's amen, amen in the Greek, which is akin to someone in English today saying, you mark my words. Because what I'm about to share with you is unvarnished, absolute truth. And then he goes on to make it very clear to Nicodemus that a man's first birth does not assure him of the kingdom. Only being born again can offer that assurance. Again, it, is, it was widely taught and understood among the Jews at the time that because they descended from Abraham, they were automatically assured of heaven. In fact, some of the Jewish rabbis used to teach that Abraham stood watch at the gate of hell just to make certain that none of his descendants would accidentally wander in there. Now, imagine that for your entire life, you're taught that as long as you belong to a particular family or a particular class of people or a particular church denomination, and as long as you follow a certain set of rules and you're a good moral person, that you're automatically guaranteed a spot in heaven. And that, for you, is your truth, however subjective it may be. And then along comes someone who understands the reality concerning salvation, and they completely demolish your truth with an altogether different truth, one that nullifies any salvific merit that you thought may have come from your family heritage or your pedigree or your denominational ties or even the moral code that you faithfully tried to live by. And he tells you that what is required of you to truly, truly experience salvation is something completely unexpected. You see, the ramifications for Nicodemus were nothing short of profound and obviously quite unnerving, as we'll see, because Jesus was telling him to throw out everything that you think you know about me and live in a way that is not what you expected, which, by the way, is the way of Christ. 
And that very same message is what he teaches us today if we're willing to listen and maybe even lay down some of our religious truths or denominational truths or even family truths that we've been taught. If in fact, that's a big if, if in fact they're not scriptural truths, okay? And so with each point in this message today, I'd like for us to confront some of the more common and long-held ideas about salvation and the life of the Christian that I think have been developed throughout church history, ideas that we may have been taught along the way on our own journey with Christ that are not reflected in the actual teachings of Christ. I want to confront these subjective truths that are born out of uh, tradition uh, and in some cases bad doctrine, just as Jesus was doing here with Nicodemus, okay? And the first is the idea that we can experience salvation through the sacraments of the church or by way of religious ritual or religious effort or religious affiliation. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9. He says, we're saved by grace through faith, not by any works that we could ever perform so that we have no boast other than to boast in Christ, Right? We put our faith in him. He doesn't put his faith in us. Salvation is the work of Christ. It's not our work. We can take zero credit for that. But I would contend that there's a sizable percentage of people walking around in this world today who believe that they're saved because they were baptized at some point in their life or because they're members of a particular church or denomination or because they faithfully go to confession or maybe they were confirmed by the church at some point, or they participated in the Eucharist, a Holy Communion, or because they recited a prayer at an altar one time. Now look, I'm not, I'm not throwing out the sacraments of the church or particular prayers, not at all. The sacraments and recited prayers exist, at least in some cases, for very good reasons, but none of those reasons include a provision for salvation for anyone. Because salvation comes and only comes truly, truly when we're born again. Now, can we experience true salvation while we're participating in a sacrament? Of course, yes, we can. Can we experience true salvation while we're praying? Of course we can. But it's not the act of reciting a prayer or participating in the sacraments that saves us. There is no work there is no moral code. There is no recited prayer that can ever save us. It is only Jesus Christ who can do that. So what does that really mean then? What does it mean to be born again or born from above, as that phrase can also be translated to mean from the ancient Greek? Well, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is a reference to a prophecy in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. It actually continues on beyond that, where God promises that I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, the water is symbolic of cleansing, which symbolizes the work of God that he does in us by his spirit to bring about a new birth. It's not a reference to salvation by water baptism. And then he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And so Jesus recalls this Old Testament promise to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, by the way, who would have been very familiar with this passage in the Hebrew Bible, probably why he used it. And Jesus says, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So being born again or born from above means that God does something in us that we cannot do. He cleanses us from the inside out and puts his spirit inside of us. And so for our part, we have to submit our lives to that reality, to that truth, believing with full faith that he is who he says he is, and then through repentance and faith, ask him to save and redeem us and fill us with his spirit. And obviously that involves serious prayer, but it is Christ alone who does that actual work of salvation. It is his spirit within us that produces a new birth, a new man or a new woman. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So we can practice all of the religious ritual and recite all of the prayers that we want to. But if we do not have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us, then we are not born again. And so this is the first part of his conversation with Nicodemus, who at this point, head must have been spinning, right? He explains to him what true salvation is. It's being born again or born from above. And then the next part of the conversation, he explains how that is made possible and what that looks like, which includes what is probably the most widely recognized verse of Scripture in all of the Bible. Let's read it together, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. This is what we were talking about earlier. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. So he tells Nicodemus what the truth is concerning salvation, and then he says, whoever does this truth comes to the light comes to salvation. Now, at first glance, that may seem like a contradiction with the first part of the story, right? If salvation is solely the work of Christ, then why does he now say to Nicodemus that whoever does what is true comes to the light? It sounds like he's putting the responsibility for salvation squarely back onto our shoulders, but he is not. If we go back to the prophecy in Ezekiel 36 that Jesus is referencing here and read on past verses 25 and 26 where God promises to cleanse us and give us a new heart and a new spirit, listen to what he says about our good works, about exactly how we will accomplish doing what is true. Verse 27, he says, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, even our own good deeds, doing what is true 
is ultimately a sovereign act of God on our behalf. We can't even take credit for our own good deeds, which is precisely what Paul teaches us throughout his letters. And what, what's the result of doing what is true? Verse 28 of this same Ezekiel prophecy, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So we get to live in the salvation and blessing of God. Can you, can you see just how unexpected this way of Christ must have been to Nicodemus, a good God-fearing Jew who was taught his entire life that if he followed enough rules, coupled with the fact that he was a Hebrew by birth and that he belonged to the Pharisee sect, that he could by his own good merit gain acceptance into the kingdom of God. It's the same for many people today who believe that we can claim salvation by our own goodness or by our own effort. The way of Christ for them is often unexpected, and yet it's more than just unexpected. The way of Christ is often uncomfortable. This isn't necessarily a popular message, but if we're going to have a conversation about objective truth, then we cannot ignore the reality that following Jesus Christ will at times be uncomfortable. Every single person that Jesus ever called to follow him in Scripture experienced tremendous discomfort at times in their lives. There were unbelievable blessings. There was joy unspeakable, peace that passed all understanding and goodness and mercy and love. Following Jesus is the greatest adventure, the most fulfilling journey that one could ever hope to experience. It is the ultimate life. Truth, it is the only life worth living. But there's a significant portion, I'm sorry to say, of the evangelical church today that teaches the way of Christ as an easy road to the exclusion of any difficulty or discomfort at all. In fact, they teach that if you do have trouble or sickness or lack or confusion or doubt or fear, that it's because your faith is too small or your giving is too little. Now, it's true. If we cheat God or have no faith, there are consequences to be had. But even at our very best, when our faith is strongest and our commitment unwavering, we are not promised a trouble-free life. Quite the opposite, in fact. Later on in this gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, John 16, And the reason that he says we'll have tribulation in this world is expressly because we're following him. It involves sacrifice to follow him, self-denial. Jesus said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. Paul said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5, 24. Peter said, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 1 Peter 4, 1. And in Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Which, of course, is a reference to the crucifixion, to identifying ourselves with the sacrifice and sufferings of Christ. There are immeasurable blessings in store for those of us who follow Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But the way of Christ is often uncomfortable by design. We were meant to learn the way of self-sacrifice. And we are defeating ourselves and the purpose of Christ in our lives when we teach the opposite. 
Right after describing all of the great accomplishments that he had achieved in his life before he was born again, the Apostle Paul said, but I count everything as loss of the surpassing because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now he's talking about all the things he had amassed and attained in his life. He says, I suffered the loss of all things. He's talking about all the things he's given up. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.8. The way of Christ is all about denying ourselves so that he may become even greater in us. So that when other people see us, they see more of him than they do of us. Now listen to what John the Baptist says as we finish the story for today. We'll read verse 22 to the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of the disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That would include our good deeds. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Right in the middle of it, John says he must increase. Jesus must increase. And John must decrease. More of him, less of us. This is the way of Christ. But unfortunately... That's not what some elements of the church are teaching today because that's not a particular, uh, particularly popular reality for us to have to accept. For those living under the delusion, and that's what it is, the delusion that being a Christian means that we should always have lots of money and never experience sickness or fear or doubt or confusion or depression, that somehow we're immune to trials and tribulations because we follow Christ, which is just another subjective truth that we need to confront in the church today because Jesus was crystal clear on this point. He was clear that following him would guarantee us times of trouble and would require us to deny ourselves and at times our own desires in in deference to his. The true truth is that the way of Christ is often uncomfortable by design. It's how he becomes stronger in us, in our own weaknesses. And as we deny ourselves for the sake of his name, we become more like him just as he denied himself for us. All right, we have to be willing 
to reject doctrines that misrepresent the teachings of Christ, even when that makes us feel uncomfortable. Because listen, where bad doctrine is allowed to survive, our testimony will not. You just write that down and plaster it on your refrigerator. It's a great truth. Where bad doctrine is allowed to survive, our testimony will not. Because bad doctrine always eventually fails. And because of it, our entire testimony in the eyes of those who witness that failure to them becomes invalid. Which is precisely why so many have left the church in the wake of the very tempting but very destructive prosperity gospel that ran amok through the church for decades. Okay? We should always be willing and prepared to confront bad doctrine in order to protect our testimony. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6-5. through If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is a summary of the prosperity gospel and all of those who sell it to others. It's important that we understand sound doctrine, the teachings, the actual teachings of Christ, and that we be able and willing to confront false doctrine within the church, which can be a very uncomfortable thing to do, but the way of Christ is often uncomfortable, okay? And there's, there's one more component to this way of Christ, one more hallmark of the life of the Christ follower, and it is truly the great theme of this entire chapter. And that is the reality, the true truth that the way of Christ is full of hope. In fact, it is the only reality that offers us true hope, hope that will never fade or die, a hope that isn't dependent upon how much money we have or how successful we are or what we can achieve for ourselves or how good we feel at any given moment. The hope that we have in Christ is wholly unique To those who have been born again, born from above. Listen, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is such a definitive statement about salvation and eternal hope. And it it parallels continually the prophecy in Ezekiel 36. If we go back to that text and keep reading verses 29 and 30, God says, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. That would be spiritual famine in the prophetic sense. That is a powerful image of the eternal hope that we have in salvation through Jesus Christ alone. The way of Christ is the way of hope. And the paradox in that is the reality that the hope and fulfillment and peace and joy and blessing and health and favor and prosperity that we all long for, it all comes by way of Christ 
as we deny ourselves and focus on living for him instead of living for ourselves. And that's counterintuitive to those who are without Christ, those who focus on themselves, believing that the way in which one gets ahead in this world is by looking out for number one. That is a subjective truth based on individual perceptions and desires that are not from God. And the tragedy of that is not only that our culture has bought into that lie, but it is so insidious that much of the church in America has bought into it as well. But it is nothing more than a false doctrine that breeds shallow disciples who live their lives missing out on all of the things that they're striving so hard to attain because they're focusing on themselves. The true joy and fulfillment and hope and peace and all the rest, it all comes increasingly as we deny ourselves and live sacrificially for Christ. Do you know that the only disciple that regretted how he chose to live, the only one who wished that he'd made a different choice was the one who decided to live for himself, for his own gain, the one who decided to look out for number one first, Judas Iscariot. He had all the same opportunities, the same proximity to Jesus, the same exposure to his teaching and affection and compassion and grace and love as all the others. And yet he decided that he would look out for himself first. And in the end, he died lost in his own hopelessness. While simultaneously, those who gave up their lives for the sake of Christ, who denied themselves and lived for him and for each other, they declared their devotion to him and their joy and hope and fulfillment in him to their very last breath, even as many of them were being martyred. What a stark contrast and what a great paradox that the world does not understand. And unfortunately, it's one that many professing Christians don't understand either. But that is the truth. That is reality. That is true truth according to God's word. And we must understand it. We must live it if we're to be able to share it with others. Others who are living in their own subjective truths about life and love and hope and happiness. Yet so many of them are miserable and constantly searching for true fulfillment in everything but Christ first. So I think we need to confront these errors, particularly within the church where there are so many, even amongst the ranks of Christians who are living for themselves first. It's interesting to me that when the world and even much of the church today looks at people like uh, Elliot and Allison Guy, our missionaries that were, were here last Sunday, a young couple with two young babies who are clearly Western in their appearance. They are the quintessential Midwestern Americans in their appearance who choose to live in a Muslim country where Christianity, I think he said there were literally 12 Christians in Oman on the Arabian uh, peninsula, non, non-existent basically Christianity, so that they can tell people about Jesus. They choose to live there. They've chosen to deny themselves the privilege of living in a country where we have the best of everything because they care more about the lost in a country where there are no opportunities to learn about Jesus unless, unless someone goes there and tells them. Or we watch a movie like Chariots of Fire, all you old guys like me and older. If you're my age or older, you probably remember that movie. Great movie. True story about an Olympic runner who refused to run in the heat that he was slated for in the Olympics because it was on a Sunday. 
And so he denied his own desire to run because his desire to honor God on the Sabbath was greater. Even when we tell our story, me and my wife and our kids, about closing down two lucrative businesses and selling our possessions and moving to Alaska to pursue ministry and then on to England and to seminary and selling all of our stuff again and moving back here to start a church. Fact is, many of you, I know, have stories of your own about great sacrifices and pursuits for the sake of the gospel. And it's interesting to me that when people hear those stories and others like them, they consider them to be exceptional. In fact, we even make movies about them because they seem so exceptional. But in the kingdom of God, those stories are not exceptional. They are normal. They are what's expected of every believer to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ, which often leads us to very unexpected and sometimes very uncomfortable places and circumstances. But the result in every case that I've ever witnessed firsthand for myself or through others is time after time after time, when you meet people who have given up everything to pursue the call of Christ in their lives, even to the forsaking of their own wealth and so many other opportunities to better themselves, what you find time after time after time are the happiest, most fulfilled, at peace, joyful people anywhere. Why is that? It isn't because we've attained great wealth, right? It isn't because we've become famous. Most full-time missionaries and ministers and committed Christians and churches live in relative obscurity, at least on the world stage. It surely isn't because we're always comfortable, right? It isn't because our lives are predictable. Not if you're following Christ, your life is not predictable. No, it's because we live every day with the reality, the objective reality, that we have an eternal hope. A hope that is built on the true truth. The reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Our lives are built on that hope and they're driven by the desire to share that hope with other people. This this is the way of Christ. This is the reality of who we are and what we live for. And I would say to you this morning, let's defend it fiercely within the church by confronting any teaching or philosophy that contradicts it, just as Jesus did. And let's share it relentlessly with the world, saturated with the same love and compassion and grace that Jesus shared with every single lost person that he encountered. This is the way of Christ. This is our way. This is truth. Let's pray.